Welcome to episode 123, Being a Therapist in a Time of Climate Catastrophe, Having These Hard Conversations, featuring Tree Staunton, Registered Psychotherapist, and Ariella Cook-Shankoff, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Elizabeth E. Riez, and today we're talking about something that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, How do we as clinicians hold space and work through our own climate hopelessness and also work with clients who are struggling with this as well when we're watching the climate change around us and it's affecting the way that we live? Um, So I have asked two experts to join me today. They are both part of the Climate Psychology Alliance, and they'll both tell you a little bit more about that. Um, But the two professionals that I have with me today, I have Tree Staunton, and I also have Ariella Cook-Shankoff. Let me start by telling you a little bit about Tree. Um, Tree is the director of the Bass Center for Psychotherapy and Counseling and the program leader for uh, Middlesex University. And she also is a longstanding member of Climate Psychology Alliance. This is one of her passions. Um, Tree, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Hi. Hi. You're welcome. So why don't you take a moment, Tree, and tell us a little bit about you and how you came to have this specialization in what is in in a field that has become climate psychology? Yeah. Okay. So um, I think it probably starts with, at the beginning of my career, I trained as an occupational therapist. In, uh, so I worked in rehabilitation, mostly with people with neurological conditions. That didn't last very long because I got very involved in movement for social change, in anti-militarism, and particularly, um, obviously, CND was around a lot, Greenham Common was around. There was a lot of activity going on um, in, in that field. Uh, and that... I worked in that for about 10 years and I began to realize that really change, you know, you can't change people's views. Change isn't really on a belief systems level. The values that people hold are actually emotional convictions, as Donna Orange tells us, you know, a a real, a deeper uh, emotional level is feeding people's beliefs. And so I then went to train as a therapist thinking this is a, uh, I need to go to this other level of emotional, uh, addressing change on the emotional level. Um, And when I finished training, then I wanted to integrate therapy and politics and try and find out how to um, integrate these. So I think that's the background that that then became, you know, when, when we began to feel the climate emergency was was really, um, you know, at the forefront, uh, that that's really what's taken taken me into, you know, being more active on that particular subject in that area. Uh, but it's the background of kind of, trying to integrate politics and psychotherapy. Great. Um, Thank you for taking the time out to share this with us. You've been so active in this for quite a while, um, even in a field that's pretty new. 
And Ariella, uh, thank you for joining us. So Ariella Cook-Shankoff, she's a licensed psychotherapist up in Berkeley, California. And one of her specializations um, is also working with climate psychology. She also treats trauma, anxiety, and maternal mental health, and also works primarily with adolescents and adults. Ariella, um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and also kind of what this topic means to you and how you started doing this work? Well, I think um, really uh, living in California, living where where I am in Northern California, um, it's the climate crisis is at our doorstep. So it's really both a, a professional and pers- very much personal concern. You know, every three months out of the year is it's wildfire season. That's what they now call it, right? And so there's a way in which I experience firsthand some, you know, mental health, like the eco anxiety and different feelings that that I, my clients are as well. And so for me, the, I had a, a wake up call um, in 2019 when I heard <clears throat> Greta Thunberg addressing, you know, the UN climate. Uh, convention for climate change and her words pierced through me. I had just dropped my kids off um, at their schools, at preschool. Her words pierced through me. They said, she said, how dare you? You know, I should be at school right now. And for me, I had to grapple with a lot of emotions that had gotten um, buried, I think, especially in new motherhood, having two young kids. And from kind of from that point on, I've, I've been committed to this. I've started to write about it in my own experiences of living through, um, you, you know, climate change and, and started to present an interview as well on the topic and educate myself because it's, it's definitely a goal of mine to remain a climate informed uh, therapist and, and really, um, you know, continue to, to build upon that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Ariella. So for our listeners, one of the things that Ariella and I have in common, so I live in Southern California and also have two young children. And even last week, so as we record this, it's January of 2021. Last week, our power and internet were out for a number of days because they were um, taking preventative measures due to the high winds. I have been evacuated I think eight times uh, during my life living in Southern California, ranging from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles. And it's become this part of my life that is unavoidable and devastating. And it's the kind of thing that I lie awake at night. I mean, our community has lost so many people. California has lost so many lives and just millions upon millions of dollars of loss of property. And um, it's it's very real. And I appreciate what Ariella is saying about it's, it's on our doorstep. And so for us, it's unavoidable. And then we have Tree joining us um, from the UK, with a very different experience of you know what it means to be con- considering climate crisis. So why don't we start right there and just start talking about for our people who don't really know about what climate psychology is, what is it? What does what does climate psychology mean? What is climate crisis? Uh, Ariella, you mentioned eco-anxiety. What do all of these terms mean and what do they equate to for us clinically? Yeah, I mean, I'm just hearing you talk about that, you know, what you're living with eight times having to evacuate from your house. I mean, I cannot imagine that really from from here. Uh, we, we, we've been experiencing floods. We had um, last uh, a week ago, we, um, people in the north particularly. But, uh, you know, 
it's 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 not anything like what you're going through losing people you know hearing that really it's it drives it home uh really really acutely so um i think that where where we start with climate psychology is really this is a, a relatively new field it's probably a decade we've been discussing this uh because the fact of you know it puzzles scientists doesn't it that we they've given us all this information and they think giving us information is going to make us act and unfortunately uh they they don't they didn't understand the irrationality of of human beings and so, and that's where we come in you know because for for decades the scientific community thought assumed that logic and and reason will lead to a reasonable response from us and it hasn't been the case you know for for the last 50 years it hasn't been the case and here we are ha holding this understanding as psychologists um about the unconscious uh, and about defense mechanisms psychological defense mechanisms that that mean that we behave irrationally i mean it is our business isn't it as therapists to work with people's uh on irrational responses and and you know why am i why do i keep doing destructive things when actually i know what i should be doing but i can't do it and that kind of that's our bread and butter really as therapists isn't it that's what we do we work with these the the sort of you know inability for somebody to 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 be congruent you know to to live their life in a way that they want to live and uh the the, the self destructive habits in our individual clients we can see on a massive scale here that you know the self destruct this this collective self destructive behavior that 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 i mean i was listening to one um one of the scientists peter peter kalmus who's out in california he's tearing his hair out you know for years trying to, to to say what is wrong with people why are they not getting this um and he's one of the few that really goes into the his own process uh emotionally because he's he's felt it very deeply i was listening to him saying you know i i i have empathy with the coral that are dying i i i feel them dying um you know and 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 that kind of connecting up is what's needed for all of us so so climate psychology is really about trying to to join up those dots I appreciate the way that you just explained that in that challenge of how how do we exist in this space where we as humans have these flaws and foibles that allow us to psychologically distance from certain things at certain times and tree you and I have talked separately about the challenge that I faced as a clinician working with clients particularly um what i find at least in my practice and i'm curious to hear both of you but with adolescents and young adults that have such a profound sense of hopelessness um because they grew up in this environment so i so i'm a child of the 80s and i grew up in 
um, you know, seeing the little video of the dinosaur with reduce, reuse, recycle. I also grew up in Northern California and a big part of growing up in the mountains, at least for me, was this idea of sustainable living and a lot of awareness about watershed and the impact of our choices on the environment. But the appreciation now is I've lived in different parts, not only of California, but of the world that they're, they're very different perspectives on this. And so I had this upbringing that was very unusual. And um, here I am now working with clients, sometimes significantly younger than me, nodding along as they're saying, I don't really even know why I'm trying anymore, because I feel like I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. And I can't get the people that have a lot of influence to listen to this. Ariella, I can see that you're nodding. As we're talking about this, Like, what does this topic mean for you? What have you seen clinically in this idea of climate psychology? Well, I, I've seen you know something similar in that um, often it's adolescents in my practice, not adults that are sharing, voicing concern about what's happening. And part of what I think um, leads them to feel more anxious about it is that they don't feel heard or understood by their parents or other adults. Um, not to mention that they're not seeing the kind of leadership that they're hoping to see on an issue that's their future. It's all, you know, it's, it's so important for them. Um, it's critical for them and not seeing adults act. What, what message does that send? Yeah. I mean, it's that we feel, we feel alongside them is is the the problem isn't it because normally as a therapist you you distance yourself a little bit from the issues that your client is 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 expressing and and you can kind of empathize and understand but you've also you know you've got your own experience you may resonate with what they're saying uh but with this you know you can imagine you know we we also feel let down by our leaders we also feel like we we are you know kind of uh crying in the dark sometimes with this issue and it's it's affecting us all we're all in the same boat i do think that yeah with adolescents i mean i i'm an art therapist as well and so sometimes it's just kind of giving them the means to express it could be non-verbally um is is really useful or even through you know poetry um i mean we just saw a young poet at the inauguration which was inspirational and um you know, having being able to voice and be heard at a really fundamental level is is really critical for for mm -hmm. young people, and and um, so that they don't feel you know that they're alone. And and I would say the other piece is is really connecting, um, you know, supporting. It could be like you know there could be group group therapy, climate psychology, you know, um, in the group format for for young people, but also. Um, just that they build those social connections and and foster you know a sense of of, of moving forward on in civic action and um, but but feeling I think integrated with alongside with adults so that it's it's not just feeling like them alone you know no one understands me yeah absolutely and my experience with it you know as someone who's been evacuated i have my clients that are being evacuated simultaneously they have no power as well these these shared experiences it 
reminds me so much, and it is really that community crisis response. We had the shooting at Borderline Bar here. You know, it's two miles from where I'm sitting right now. And it was that same idea that there was something that happened in the community and it was this collective trauma. It wasn't one of those removed situations where it's like, oh, my client is going through a divorce and you know, maybe I've been through it myself, but hopefully I have enough distance from their situation that it doesn't become this kind of shared trauma. But these situations, as we're talking about them, believe me, they're shared traumas. And as a wind picked up last week, the hair on the back of my neck stand, you know, standing up, every single one of my clients was bringing up, like, I didn't sleep well last night because so many of them, I mean, I've had clients that have lost homes um, in the California wildfires. Uh, so to be in a circumstance where now we have this just routine trauma that's coming back up, Ariella, mm -hmm. I appreciate what you're saying, which is like, how do we hold space for that? Because we can't gaslight. We can't, we can't use our CBT skills to argue with this and ask whether or not it's a rational thought. And it's like, no, it's completely rational mm -hmm. that you're lying awake at night. Yeah, yeah. And so what do we do with that? Um, so tree, I, I'm curious, one of your specializations has been really understanding how people cope with the emotional and psychological impact of climate psychology and and how we've gotten here. So what do people do to get through this, to exist in a land of denial? I know for myself, I grew, so I'm a tree, tree hugger through and through, but I go through phases, like phases where I am like very angry at plastic, you know, and, and it's just like, we will have none of it in our house and no, you can't have a straw, you know, and it's like, mm. there's this, there is a light, uh, that is, burning underneath me, a fire burning underneath me. And then I see other phases, not where I, I get lax, but it's not as passion driven, almost as anger driven. So what do we, what do we do psychologically to cope with this conflict? Uh, I, I think what you're saying is really interesting. It reminds me too of, of um, all in all political uh, movements, you get burnout, don't you? You get the, the, the kind of, somebody just can't keep going about an yeah. issue. Um, and I think that's the same here, that it, it kind of has to has to go on the back burner for a while, um, you know, if, if you're not. I mean, I, I'm curious, actually, about how it is when you have the fire season and then it goes away. Does it then go away in your mind? Does it go away because it's not in your direct experience? I'm curious what Ariella's response is, but for me, it is always on my mind. And it, again, growing up in Tahoe, growing up in the mountains where the threat of wildfire was very real at all times. Like I, I learned as a little kid to pay attention to where the dead trees were. Like It was just like, that was what we were taught in school. So for me, it's always spinning in the background. And it's been interesting in my lived experience in the last few years because it's been so dramatic with the amount of life and um, and property that's been lost in the last five years here in California. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's never far from my mind. It's the, not a day passes, practically not an hour passes, and I'm not aware of it. Um, and I've wondered, like, okay, when when fire season passes, that quote unquote fire season now just spreads into the entire year. When it passes, will I back off of this? And what's interesting is that I don't. 
Like I, I haven't found that I back off of it. And so I've been watching myself and riding that wave, but the, the pressure now is ever present. Ariella, how about for you? Yeah. Um, so for me, I mean, I'm from Connecticut. So this what getting used to wildfires in California has been, I mean, I've, I'm like a fish out of water here. It's been, it's been like such an adjustment. I don't know. I mean, I didn't grow up with the drills that, you know, that you had Beth. So for me, it is on my mind a lot. And I have had my first uh, friend move away be- and for this very reason. And uh, it is a conversation that I'm having as well about our family and if we're going to stay. But I, I would say that I kn- what, what's, what I find concerning is that it, for, and it's concerning and it, it makes sense, is that for a lot of people, it disappears. I, it's completely like no one's talking about it. It's on everyone's mind. Everyone's in a heightened state of alert. You know, everyone's going to the stores mm-hmm. and buying up masks, buying out ice, buying, you know, preparing to evacuate, having their go, your, you know, their grab bags ready to go. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, in December, whenever it starts to, you know, some rain comes or, you know, it's, it's over, it's off the, table. I don't hear people talking about it so much. As human beings, we tend to place immediate concerns over long-term considerations. So we've got so much, you know, on our plates right now, collectively, if we look at what's going on, the pandemic stress, right? Um, Joblessness, there's food insecurity, there's um, political, Mm -hmm. you know, conflicts, there's racial, um, you know, violence, there's so many different things, so many different layers that are competing for our attention we can only handle so much on our plate, right? Like you can't, you can't take it all on at once. And so some things will get shelved. And um, especially for those who are not maybe directly um, yeah, impacted by um, the wildfires. Absolutely. And that phenomenon of caution fatigue, I think we've seen so clearly with the pandemic. I think we've probably seen it all in ourselves. We see it in people around us where we're not designed to be on high alert. Our, our immune systems, our, our bodies, our brains are simply not designed to exist in this heightened state of alert all the time and we get burnt out. And so we drop back down into something more manageable. And Ariella, you brought up something that I, I want to quickly touch on and, and not move away from. But that idea of being able to move out of an area because of climate impact and how much part of this conversation is access to finances, is about privilege, is about race and ethnicity and being in very different areas. And so here we are in California talking about wildfires, but you know, we could just as easily be talking about hurricanes, about tornadoes, about flooding, about these different phenomena that are affecting people all over the world. And that some people are simply stuck there. They don't have the option. And so that increase in hopelessness where it's like, I, my goodness, what privilege do I have to be sitting here going, goodness, can I, can I uproot my family? Can we move? Do we have the resources to be able to do that? Um, and appreciating what a unique and um, while still awful position to be in is so much better than other people. And the impact, when we look at the impact of climate change, the the increased um, fallout for 
people who are not white who mm-hmm. have lower socioeconomic status um, that you know I've I've absolutely seen that real time in different communities and in different countries where I've traveled where it's like you don't have the privilege of thinking about how many plastic bags you're using because you're using plastic bags to store your food because you don't have access to resources to even buy plates so it really doesn't matter whether you're using plastic um, because you're just trying to survive and th- that's a different animal. My, my answer, quick answer to that is with privilege, I think comes responsibility. And I think that, I mean, I'm, I, I have to say I am feeling uh, energized by seeing how many people are taking this on. There's actually an increase in engagement on this issue. I think one concern was that the pandemic, you know, would eclipse all and there wouldn't be continued mm-hmm. engagement. But I, I believe it, um, you know, the Yale um, site for climate com- communications showed that, you know, there's, there's even actually consistent engagement and maybe even a little bit more now, even in 2020. I had the privilege of being able to um, pack up my family and go stay at a, a friend's house, um, you know, to be able to work remotely um, or take the time off. Not everyone can do that. I also was able to, you know, purchase, uh, we purchased air filters for our house. And, you know, those are not cheap. And there's there's so many um, inequities that are a part of this that must be addressed. Those who are who have the privilege to you know do everything within their power to to speak out and to bring this into consciousness. The therapists we do, we don't set the agenda. You know we're not supposed to bring in something to a therapy space. We're supposed to be there and res- receive and respond and so on. Um, but we also know that um, when something is in our consciousness and we we look for it, we kind of can invite things into the room. Uh, and we can also, our clients know when things are welcome or they're not welcome um, in, in, in all kinds of ways. Um, we, we don't necessarily start the conversation, but you know, it we can in the beginning when we when we uh, first see our clients, we can say, you know, well, so and what's your relationship to the world? How are you feeling in the world right now? Uh, because that's so relevant, isn't it? And and it's we have to assume that the world is impacting on people, and that even though they may come with a, a kind of a a problem that's in their their immediate world they have to be being impacted by what's happening right now so tree as you're talking about this tell me more about those psychological defense mechanisms because you know i i know i've seen it firsthand of the denialism that is alive and and well all over the world particularly about not necessarily well there is absolutely denialism about climate change in general and whether or not that's a thing. But the other part is like the idea of whether or not we need to do something about it right now. So there's kind of this twofold issue. How do human beings defend ourselves with from this kind of information when we're looking at denial of these defense mechanisms? What are they called? Can you talk about that? I know that that's one of the things that's really interesting well of course you know immediately when you say denial that that's the you know when we when we fear being overwhelmed then then that's when we shut down and we can't 
process and we can't consciously recognize what's happening. So we have to assume denialism here is is about the fear of overwhelm and creating, you know, the wall that we we we're not going to take this in. Um, but one of the the things here with with climate psychology, the word disavowal is used very often, and that's a, that's a much more interesting kind of defence because you are you know the information, you accept the reality about it, and at the same time you you can kind of compartmentalise it somewhere in your psyche and then go about doing things that actually are contributing and making the problem worse. So, you know, we still uh, have people that fly at the same time as believing and knowing that flying is a really damaging thing to do. That's the worst thing you can do for the environment. And and I, I, I was talking to Ariella about that myself when I, 2015, I flew to, to California. I was there for a month. Um, and when I think that in 2015, I was more than aware, you know, I had been working on this, I had been aware of this, and yet I, I could do that. Um, when I came back, I had a kind of uh, absolute moment where I, I had to, I could no longer have um, a, 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 a petrol car. I just had, I a switch to an electric car I could not and there was something about I cannot go and 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 fill up with with this stuff I I cannot bear to use fossil fuels anymore but I still always wondered how did how did I manage that to sit alongside going on this long-haul flight knowing what I know and and that's one of the most in, in you know in, interesting and problematic i think defense is this lack of congruence that we we don't line things up you know and it, it's it's you know you listen to greta it drives her mad she says adults say one thing and they do another and she can't comprehend why this is you know that we do we do this we split off and we we kind of know something and we don't live by what we know we do, we aren't consequential um and i i think one of the things that um i i think about what jung said you know he 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 talked about the fact that consciousness is possible because what i think in my head and what i feel in my heart are different and what I know in my guts, they're all different. You know, we aren't, we're a sort of multiplicity, you know, we're not of one mind. Um, and I think therapy really is about trying to get more lined up with ourselves, isn't it? So that we can be more congruent. Um, but there are always things that before we go into therapy, we don't know about in ourselves. You know, we don't know our shadow self. We don't know all, all these conflicting uh, things that are going on in us. Um, and we act out of those. So so one of the aims of therapy is to, to become more congruent and become more of one mind and and being able to act on what we know uh but yeah it, it's a long task and the challenge we have at the moment is we don't have much time
it's an emergency. Um, thank you for introducing that concept um, of disavowal and this idea of distancing yourself through almost it sounds like kind of continuing fluctuating denial to bargain with a concept that's kind of what I call brain breaking. And I've seen that in myself. I've seen it in my clients, even just around the topic of climate. As I'm flying long haul, I am not thinking about the climate, you know, and it's not, I don't have the guilt there, you know. So some people will be doing something and at the same time feel guilty. Uh, but it, it's, you know, the, the mechanisms that we have to, to avoid this uh, kind of coming together in ourselves and really being congruent and behaving in ways that, you know, we may have to sacrifice things to to kind of behave ethically and to line ourselves up with what we know and what we believe. When you talk about congruence, you're really talking about that idea of, as you said, through the Jungian perspective of bringing together our kind of our gut feeling, really our, our values and our thoughts and emotions and mm. and taking action that makes sense, that brings those ideas together. And this idea of incongruence, I know I've felt that. It's like, well, but I really want that thing. I really want that thing. So I get a I get a break today in being a conscientious consumer and aware of my carbon impact because I really want that thing, whatever that thing is. And seeing myself even personally just working through that. Ariella what are your thoughts? I'm just thinking about as as we're having this conversation about like the addiction model and the stages of change and like the you know the wheel of you know there's a way in which yeah there's pre-contemplation right and then there's contemplation and um just kind of moving through but it's like that that space of um you know or you have the desire the motivation you know you you want to maybe quit this addiction of fossil fuel right but it's really hard to make those lifestyle changes or to like you know if you if you've kind of gotten used to a certain way of living yeah how do you move into action how do you um really move forward i think it's an interesting kind of model for examining some of that but I, I was going to mention also um, just the just the stress response system as a reason, you know, like or how in, in looking at how we respond to um, the climate crisis as humans. If you look at the fight, flight, or freeze response, everyone can be, you know, is responding differently, and this is part, you know, this this can explain some of it. If you look at um, fight, it could be some people are rising to this challenge, and they're they're um, you know, become activists, they become super engaged, or maybe they even burn out. So it's like it can be a one extreme, right? Um, and then there's the flight, which is more, dis they, they're distancing themselves from from the pain of, of facing, of facing what's going on, because it's, it's so um, emotionally disturbing. And I mean, there can also be flight could also look like a, an unrealistic opt optimism, like, it's going to be okay. Like someone's working on this, you know, it can, it can manifest in these different ways. And then the freeze response I think of as more of just that shock of deer in headlights, you know, kind of dissociative response, um, just being in it and not being able to do very much. So I think that that can be an interesting way to, to look at it as well. 
Yeah, it's very, very important. And I think when people are contemplating some of the worst predictions about climate change and about catastrophe and about, you know, uh, the whole gamut of things that are going to kick off, it's it's so difficult to process that that huge amount of information, isn't it? And and to project into the future. Um, and so I, I was thinking, you know, when you don't have your wildfires, then then maybe it's the time to process. So then you're not in the in the trauma response or the immediate danger. And then maybe agenda that this is the time to run workshops. This is the time when we're going to process what's happened so that we can, you know, come back to ourselves and we're not in danger. I think that's a really important point. Um, if we're kind of riding the stages of change to keep that in mind that when we're in this trauma response, yes, believe me, we're aware of it and, and we're wrapped up in it. But it's also not a time where we're capable of certain action because we're just too busy trying to keep our proverbial heads above water or literal as the case may be in not too long. Um, for each of you, what do you think is the number one thing that therapists, therapists need to know about how to deal with climate distress, climate hopelessness, whatever, eco-anxiety, whatever word you want to use for it, but the feelings related to climate, what do you think therapists really need to keep in mind? I, I think that the number one thing um, is that therapists need to be aware of their immediately their own responses. They, they need to be aware that if they suggest immediately, I mean, this is something that I know therapists do, they suggest action as, as a kind of, you know, uh, solution to, to flight to action, uh, which is pushing people away. It's distancing ourselves from their emotional response um you know kind of pushing them in another direction to suggest so i think suggesting action is uh, i think it's a as a panacea it's it's a no-no because it means you're not really up for being with it and processing it um i think the other worst uh, intervention i can think of is when a, a therapist tries to treat the client's anxiety or distress as personal as theirs and doesn't get alongside them and say yes this this is this is really distressing i completely understand i'm with you i agree that this is something very distressing you know no amount of distress about this is too much um, to stay with the reality of it and to acknowledge it fully. And if therapists haven't done, haven't confronted this in themselves and they haven't done the work, they are going to distance themselves when someone is distressed. They are going to try and either find solutions or, you know, kind of divert or block. There isn't going to be a receptivity to, yes, bring this in. It's welcome. We need to sit with this. I appreciate that perspective. And how about for you, Ariella? What do you feel like therapists need to keep in mind in working with clients that are actively experiencing climate distress? Therapists have to do their own work um, in order to, you know, to show up for their clients and be able to be there and to even maintain that, you know, the type of boundaries. It can be much harder 
when you know you're experiencing the same thing as your client and it requires us i think as mental health pr practitioners to think cre uh, critically and creatively about our theoretical frames um, and interventions and approaches and how to better adapt them to meet the challenges of the 21st century. How does this complement um, or even go against different clinical frames, knowing that for many therapists, they are diehard EMDR clinicians, or they are very serious about dialectical behavior therapy, or they do cognitive behavioral therapy. How do people bring this together when it's front and center um, at, at certain times, like we've talked about when we kind of hit those waves in those different stages? How does this complement other models and theories of change and of psychotherapy treatment? Psychological approaches have developed, haven't they? Because we began with the individual psyche, you know, with Freud, and and then we moved to uh, more kind of relational approaches. You know, we with with um, Winnicott's famous thing: "There's no such thing as a baby." We we get that, you know, we are always in relationship, so we can't be treating people as an individual uh, psyche and 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 so on. So, so we've moved towards relational approaches, um, and uh, you know the intersubjective people who say, you know, the myth of the isolated mind. We are not is an isolated mind. We are, we are, um, you know, relational beings. I think this is the next kind of big iteration that we all have to take on board. Is is that we are in relation to our environment. We're not just in relation to each other, one another as humans, but we also have this, this wider relationship to our environment in, on which you know, we are dependent. Um, and we need to broaden our approaches to, to embrace that. You know, we, we've had here... Um, my in in center in Bath, we we've, we've run a course on the eco self, um, so the the human bond with nature. Uh, looking at that, um, there is a big movement of eco psychology here. Um, professionals are actually involved in setting the standards for training. We are able to do that, and so we are bringing in. We more and more professionals are bringing in you know, that we need to have um, our relationship to our environment, that we are, in, that we are in, in the environment. We've got to have that in our trainings and we've got to have it um, in our supervision trainings too. As you're talking about that, I can already hear kind of the building blocks of integrating climate psychology and discussion about this with attachment theory and also with systems theory. Ariella, mm. as a practitioner in the United States, where we are all about the acronyms, <laughs> um, really big on those evidence-based practices, those EBPs, how do you see climate psych fitting into these different models and how can practitioners think about that? Yeah, on one hand, I think we need to broaden, you know, envision like a broader approach to this, a cultural, eco-psychological, trauma-sensitive, social justice approach that, you know, understands the holistic relationship between human health and planetary health. So that's on one hand. But on the other, okay, these are the, these are, this is what we've got and what we're working with, right? 
DBT and neurobiological CBT. I, I think as an eclectic therapist who uses different approaches, we can certainly take climate psychology and adapt it, you know, within those, you know, frameworks. Um, I've thought about it a bit myself. You could take any concept from any one of those, like you can start to play around with it. I mean, motivational interviewing would be a great tool for exploring the ambivalence that someone's experiencing about, you know, the, you know, wanting to take care of the planet, but like finding it difficult to make those lifestyle changes, right? So you can imagine that, you know, in terms of like the window of tolerance and like how much, you know, someone can, 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 um, handle a client can handle before they become going to move out of a state of uh, regulation into hypo or hyper arousal you can imagine using those as tools of okay let's 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 educate the client like okay how can you kind of calm yourself and come back into this place of um of regulation where then you can actually maybe stay engaged on this and not disappear on it not then you know run away from it but also not slip up into the panic mode. Um, so I can imagine adapting it to any 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 approach or many approaches, I should say. One of my experiences, and Ariella, just like yours, this is something I see adolescents and adults bringing in um, more commonly. But that kind of paralyzing hopelessness, this visceral awareness of the adults those those people up there whoever they are aren't protecting me and gosh it feels really silly for me to be worried about whether or not i'm going to use a disposable water bottle when i feel like i'm basically hurtling toward a, a brick wall you've both mentioned sitting with clients and meeting them where they're at you know obviously in that moment we're not going to be like okay let's let's you know evaluate the antecedent of this thought process you know it's like we're going to meet them where they're at um but when it comes to psychologically processing past that point you know when we're present with the hopelessness or the anger or whatever it is it that a client feels what then do we do what's the next step in that process with the client once you're in the process, it's process-led. The next layer, the next thing can come as long as you are attuned and, uh, you know, receptive and, and you know, resonating with what's what's coming. Then there's a self-regulation that can start happening where where somebody, the next layer comes, yeah? That's, that's the way I would see it. So um, if you're doing the therapy that's needed here, the the process will unfold in the way that it needs to. And, we, and of course, we can have all those models. And we've talked before about the grief model um, and how, uh, you know, we can use that as a, as a background to, to support us. But that doesn't take away from just being in the here and now with, with each individual processes it unfolds at any time anything can set off a new chain reaction of emotions the processing can happen in, in individual therapy but social connection is is critical um here this is um what you know is inspiring you know i think many people to act to move forward to feel more hopeful we know that and for adolescents social connection is 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 key and so if they have 
others who are willing to be vulnerable share what they're going through um, or that they feel they can just connect to, relate to, talk about it, that's going to make a huge difference. And I think this thing about cycling through the the emotions in the processes is something that we see on the Climate Psychology Alliance, we have a, a kind of group chat that, that goes on. Um, we have now about 300 people, 300 members. Um, a year ago, I think we had 100. Uh, so there's more and more people joining in the conversation. Um, and it's a wide-ranging conversation. But what we also are able to see is that we go through different different phases so we drop out of the conversation for a bit or you know and and we talk about you know at one point I mean I I can remember at one point every conversation I had I had to bring it up Mm -hmm. I was kind of like it was bursting in me you know this the conversation about the climate everything is linked to it um and I think at that point, really, you can see that there's a, a difficulty in containing. You know, there's something so pressing um, that you kind of want to want to get it out of you. And you. And I think when I reflected um, afterwards about that phase for me, it was about uh, longing for someone to soothe me. I needed soothing. You know, I needed somebody to say. Wow, you know, it's, uh, that's so difficult to bear and just to be able to be with it. And of course, when you're out on the street and you're talking to people like that, they're going to get into a, an argument. They're going to say yes, but, and they're going to do all of those things people do in normal conversations. Um, and so that's why I think it's so important that therapists offer this this very special privileged environment that we are, are able to have with people, you know, where we can we can stay with something and we can process comment and we can um, try and, you know, invite people to go deeper or to stay with something. And that's not something you can do in a public sphere. Mm. Um, you know, so I, so I think that a therapist has to have gone through or experienced some of that themselves to know what it's like to be to be to have this urgent need to to you know to to talk and talk and talk about this um because you you just have to you're compelled to and then and then there are times when you you just as you said before beth you just let it go and you think well and I had a period of that too thinking I said to my colleague in in climate psychology I was, where has it gone it's kind of gone you know there's not the same urgency or impetus in me anymore but then it, it kind of came back in and I again had a cycled through some grief again and you know so as you as you said Ariella it's it's kind of cycling and cycling through it we have to know that in ourselves as therapists. I appreciate that both of you also brought up these ideas, pulling from other models, you know, whether it's motivational interviewing or grief, for example, and that part of that, part of any of this work is, I think, sitting with that ambivalence and also sitting with the dialectic, you know, that I've struggled with that myself. Like, how do I balance these concepts? I've, I've experienced that idea and watched it in clients 
where we get really zoomed in, as I call it, where we're like hyper-focused, just like you were talking about tree. And then sometimes we zoom back out and we're like, oh, what happened? And we zoom back in and how we work through those different stages because they're, they're so complex and so personal. And another thing I'm hearing from both of you is just that idea of like, we need to show up with our clients wherever they're at, but keep in mind that we have these models that if we feel like a client maybe is, is, uh, working through stages of change, they're in preparation about something, then can we use motivational interviewing to get them 1% closer to act, to activation at that point? I, I appreciate those concepts because I think when we're sitting there, it can feel so grave and it's easy to get emotionally wrapped in with it that we forget these clinical skills that we've acquired over the years and their applicability to to this concern. So one of my questions for you, do therapists need to have specialized training um, for having conversations about climate distress? Does that exist? Like, what does that even look like? There was a time when um, I trained as a body psychotherapist. There was a time when we were saying as body psychotherapists, every psychotherapist needs to be a body psychotherapist uh, and we couldn't understand why people how people could do psychotherapy without without involving the body uh, now and then of course everything became you know trauma-informed practices everything then began to integrate the body and i think we're at another another kind of stage now where every therapist needs to be a climate aware therapist and I think it's our ethical responsibility to make sure that we prepare for that. And as we've said, the biggest preparation really is ourselves. It really is uh, opening ourselves to our, to the process of, of comprehending this on every level uh, and of processing our own responses, knowing ourselves enough to be able to enter the conversation you know, openly and, and receptively. You've said already our clients are not being met by their their family or friends in their distress. Um, so the, the number one thing is we, we have to be ready to meet them with this, isn't it? I agree with Tree. It's an ethical responsibility at this point to, to become a climate-aware therapist. We need to take action now and um, there certainly are continuing education units that are out there. Um, I've taken one with, um, you know, somebody, a, a therapist who's really active on the climate front named Leslie Davenport. There's others as well through Climate Psychology Alliance, Climate Psychiatry Alliance. And, and discussing with, with colleagues, isn't it? Because having the conversations with colleagues is so important. It's so supportive. Um, you know, it, it's an ongoing process uh, of discussion. I mean, there's an awful lot out there at the moment, especially because we're all online. There's so much stuff. And the, I feel that's another way we can get overwhelmed sometimes, you know. There's so much hmm. that we have to attend to and a lot of it on screens. And um, it takes us really further away sometimes from our from our own embodied reality in our lives and and from the nature and from the, the the connection to our environment so so we really need to keep a balance don't we 
what's interesting is, as you're both talking about this, there's so much parallel process that I'm hearing in this idea of therapists kind of fundamentally, if they're, if they're doing this work, needing to have done the work within themselves first to understand how it's emotionally affecting them, knowing when they need to zoom out because it becomes too overwhelming. And Ariella, you brought up that idea of like, we, we can't do this in a vacuum. We need to do this with a sense of connection to other people and exactly building upon what Tree just said of this idea of, of connecting with other professionals. Again, that parallel process of us walking through our own version of this. And I know I've personally struggled with that because it's something I'm very aware of in my clinical work. And for many years, really feeling like, is is anybody else aware of this? <laughs> like looking around me like, is anyone else seeing what I'm seeing? Because I'm really freaked out and my clients are bringing it up. And I've had the experience now in the last year of seeing on social media therapists going, what are you doing about this? Like, how mm. how are you all approaching this with your clients? How are you talking about this? Because now it's becoming more and more pressing as each day passes. And the need to um, set up the scaffolding to help ourselves and help our clients with it. There are climate cafes for therapists that are happening right now also. So those are happening through Climate Psychology Alliance, and I'm sure that that will be growing. So let's talk about that next piece. So for our listeners that are feeling compelled and motivated to dive a little bit more into this this conversation, into this topic, knowing that what we're really talking about right now is just barely scratching the surface, how do people do that? What resources do you recommend to them? Um, and I'm curious what's been really helpful for you as practitioners in your own growth. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've talked to you about the Climate Psychology Alliance and the, the resources that are on the website there. One of the developments has been uh, podcasts, really good, really good podcasts, amazing uh, discussions with young people between one of our, our members, uh, Caroline Hickman, who's who's done a lot of podcasts there, uh, conversations. So um, I did a, a, some training for therapists. I've done a couple of CPD workshops. This was before the pandemic, so we were in person. Um, and uh, we, we spent really half of the day dealing with confronting our own responses um, and then in the afternoon session, we looked at uh, uh, kind of how questions that clients bring and, and dilemmas that clients bring and how can we respond to those. Um, and, you know, it was really, really, really nourishing, I think, for people, especially people who'd, who'd really met it in the, in the room and not known how to cope with it, you know. One person said a client came and she was she was somebody who was flying a lot. She was flying, you know, everywhere. Uh, and the therapist was really struggling with it. She was saying, like, this, how can I sit and listen to her next plan for her sixth flight in, you know, in a few weeks when I'm having all these feelings about her not having any climate consciousness, you know, or conscience. Um, so, so I think that's where we need backup in, in our peer supervision and our supervisors to, to, to really come to some kind of reality about, well, how much can we, how much can we say? 
how much can we intervene in this? Yeah, these are very complicated issues and questions that you're bringing up and uh, obviously another conversation for another time, but that, yes, I, I've, I've been faced with that. And it's reminding me of the interview that I did with Lambers Fisher um, when client and therapist values clash. And this is another one of those values clashes. Mm -hmm. And I too, and I can appreciate that values conflict and that example you brought up. Um, there's so much more to be said on this topic. You've both named resources that I think are very helpful in this idea of starting fundamentally with Climate Psychiatry Alliance, Climate Psychology Alliance, Tree, earlier you'd mentioned climate coaching. Um, but there, yeah. there are these resources out there and it gives us, I think, a starting off point in Ariella, this idea of pursuing continuing education in these topics and seeking out community is also one of the themes I'm hearing from both of you. For our listeners that want to learn more specifically about each of you and about your work, um, Ariella, how do people get in touch with you? If any, anyone would like to get in touch with me, please take, visit my website, ariellacookshankoff.com, professional Facebook page, and um, I have a Twitter account as well where I post my writing on this topic and other writing as well. And Tree, for our listeners that want to get in touch with you, learn more about your work, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, they can contact me at uh, my organizational email. That's tstaunton at bcpc.org.uk. Um, and I'm on that on that website of BCPC. Uh, and I'd be very happy to hear from people and respond. Wonderful. I'm so appreciative to both of you for taking the time out to have this conversation. I know that that idea of social connection over time, having both of you in my life has made this feel a little less daunting and a little more connecting um, and encouraging. Um, so I, I certainly encourage our listeners to reach out and seek other people that are experiencing these issues personally and, and clinically. Thank you both, Ariella Tree. I really appreciate you spending this time with us. Thank you. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.